Uh, we're in the book of Proverbs. And if you would, turn there to me, uh, turn there with me. And so here's basically, let's read a couple verses and I'll kind of give you the thought process here. We're in chapter 10 of the book of Proverbs. And we've been in this series for a number of weeks and we're going to kind of continue it through the end of the year. And um, it's been refreshing for me. I don't know about you guys. How, I mean, a bunch of you are reading Proverbs every day. Has it been kind of refreshing and, and unexpected for you? Um, yeah? Somebody? Who, who is that? And uh, I'll pay you to be here every Sunday sitting here. Um, I, I need someone to interact with. Just move right there. We're good. Um, so yeah, super, super excited about this, and I'm just, I'm digging it. So here's where, where I was. So this week it was going to be about, or kind of is, I don't know how you'd classify it, um, wisdom and relationships. And I was all excited because there's so much about relationship stuff in the book of Proverbs, and, and um, me and you all, we're all dysfunctional with relationships, so I thought this will be really good and timely, and um, and so, you know, I was in chapter 10 here and, and pulling some of these nuggets out. Let's just jump in at verse 11 and kind of read down through the end of the chapter. But verse 11 of Proverbs says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. And we're going to see this theme all throughout Scripture, this idea that the mouth or from the mouth of the righteous or the one who's godly or, or, or rightly ordered or mature that out of their mouth is this kind of nurturing element. So Paul will say in Ephesians, let no unwholesome word, uh, unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building up others, for edifying, for nurturing. So there's this idea of life-givingness coming out of the mouth, and we're going to see that all throughout. In verse 12, hatred uh, stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. We see that theme echoed by Paul again too. Love, love covers a multitude of wrongs. And in 1 John we see that, but hatred stirs up dissension. When I am against you in my heart, somehow it's going to create a dissonance in the relationship that's, that's going to affect kind of the unity or the, the community as a whole. But love covers over all wrongs. My wife, when I married her, she brought a statement into our, our marriage that if all were known, all would be forgiven, and it's kind of shaped our ministry. It's really hard to have grace for people. I remember when we started a college group in Bend, it was 10, 10 people, started like, as like three, grew to 10, and there was one guy that would come on Sunday nights, uh, all hopped up on gin. He was, he, had a, uh, he was an alcoholic, and he'd come just all hopped up on gin. There was another girl that showed up at our doorstep uh, who was... In the pro, she was addicted to crystal meth, and she, on Thanksgiving, uh, wrote a comment and tagged Tamara on this comment that it's been 10 years um, since I've been straight, you know, and her whole life has changed, and she's married now, and all this other stuff. But this college group was really rowdy. I mean, it was it was not comfortable, like from a from a really Christian college type comparison point. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so you kind of walk in and you're like, well, should I, <laughs> how much of this should I be against or frustrated with or judging, you know? And um, my background, you know, coming from college was pretty rowdy. So I, it's easy for me to kind of look past a lot of that stuff. And, and so it was amazing the conversations we have and Tamara coming in and it's like, you know, the, the, the thing that I learned growing up, if all were known, all would be forgiven. Meaning, if you understand the background, if you understand the abuse, um, if you understand the trauma, if you understand uh, the, the, the family context, if you understand things that went wrong, if you understand life experiences that happened, if you understand all of those factors, you realize people aren't 100% evil just because they show up, you know, drunk to a college group, you know, church calls, that, that their lives are messy, just like my life is messy, and their particular besetting sins are different than mine. 
But you know what? If God can have grace for me, I can have grace for them. If I really understood their context, it's not going to be so repulsive or offensive. It's just going to be messiness. And I can look at that and go, isn't it wonderful that you can come into this group and find out about a God who still loves you despite that mess and wants to redeem you out of that mess and forgive you and give you a second lease on life. And, and so this statement, if all were known, all would be forgiven. You know, love covers a multitude of wrongs. And we got to remember that because otherwise we have this, this kind of church idea where we, we have these what's tolerated and what's not tolerated and then we're, we're kind of sizing everybody up and, and it becomes everything wrong and pharisaical. And wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning. Wisdom is something that has a ring to it. When it comes out of mouths, you can hear it. It's, it's true. It resonates. Wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning. But a rod is for the back of him who lacks judgment. Wise men store up knowledge, but the, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. From the mouth of a foolish person, that person is inviting destruction into their life. You know how I know this is true? Because I mean, how many times opening your mouth have you brought ruin to your life? I mean, it's just, it's just true, right? Down to verse 16, the wages of the righteous brings them life. What they earn from their righteousness is life, but the income of the wicked brings them punishment. He who heeds discipline shows the way to life. So you want to know how to have life, follow someone who heeds discipline. Find someone in your life that is disciplined, knows how to stay on the path, watch their life, and it's like a, it's like a fullback that's going to lead you to life. But whoever ignores correction leads others astray. 18, he who conceals his hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. Whoever spreads slander is a fool. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The tongue, again, what, the mouth and what comes from it, it, it's valuable and it's something you put out on the centerpiece of a table and it's something that unifies and brings good to a family or to a community. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct, but a man of understanding delights in wisdom. Verse 24, when what the wicked dreads will overtake him, and what the righteous desire will be granted. What the righteous desire will be granted. And when the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. Listen to some of these relational kind of principles. So as I was prepping for this, I was like, man, so let's, let's dig all these out. <clears throat> and uh, wrath, Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's the response to the first comment that usually starts the fight. I mean, the first comment might have had tone to it. It might have frustrated you. But, you know, it's like in football. It's the, it's the guy that, that fights back that always gets flagged for the penalty. Does that make sense? The first guy reacted. The second guy had a choice to further it or to let it go or to turn away. It's the second guy that has, or gal, that has such an opportunity to keep the unity and the peace by how they answer or respond to the input. And a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 12, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 13, he who guards his lips guards his life. Proverbs 20, it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. Proverbs 22, on anger, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. Proverbs 29, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control and, and, and shows restraint. Proverbs 18, he who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. Proverbs 24, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. That's the way I feel when you guys are honest with me. I just really feel like you're kissing me. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it's in Scripture. It's a good thing. Um, Proverbs 26, 
Do not answer a fool according to his folly. This is something we need to heed. Or you will be like him yourself. But answer a fool according to his folly, or he will, he will be wise in his own eyes. What the heck does that mean? It means the stupid idiot that you're having the conversation with that cannot understand reason, quit arguing with them. It doesn't matter how many 30, 40 times you're going to say what you're going to say. They're still not going to get it. You see what I'm saying? Like, man, politics is like this. Like, you know, I, people want me to get sucked into this political debate. And so someone will be like, oh, you know, why don't you weigh in? I'm like, because you're both idiots. I mean, look, look you know, this isn't going to go anywhere, right? Um, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Like, don't descend into that pettiness. Stand outside of it. But, but answer a fool lest he think he's wise. Hey, listen, um, do you really think that one of these political candidates is perfect? Do you really think one platform has 100% righteousness on its side? Do you really think that everyone in the world is going to benefit from this candidate the way you will? Or do you think there's other people that might actually have a better candidate for them in their life stage than, than you in your life stage or class or race or whatever? Like, hey, I know this means a lot to you. That's great. But let's not make it so universal that everyone is dumb if they don't think like you. You know, let's, let's have wisdom into it. Does that make sense? So don't answer a fool according to his folly, but answer a fool, answer a fool according to the folly, lest that person be wise in those eyes. And, uh, and we, we keep jumping around here. Proverbs 12, a prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, but the heart of, a, of fools blurts out folly. Proverbs 12, an anxious heart weighs a man down, but kind words cheer him up. So I was, I was gonna... I was going to go into these more, and the more and more I preached that sermon in my head, the more bored I got. I mean, I really got, I was like, wow, you know, this is really boring me. And what I began to realize was this. There's no value for me to stand here on a Sunday if we're not trying to learn something. Okay? And the more I looked at these random verses, and by the way, these, these relational verses this was another thing I, I kind of learned as I was trying to unpack this. They're, they're all over the book of Proverbs with no rhyme or reason. I mean, it's just it's shotgun all over the book of Proverbs. And you're like reading about the tongue or anger. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're completely on a different tangent. And, and eight, nine verses later, you might get a random verse. And then two, three chapters later. And they're all over the book of Proverbs, but there's no like rhyme or reason to it. And as I started looking at it, I was like, wow, there's something fascinating going on here. Um, one, Solomon had attention um, disorder issues and couldn't stay on. Number two, the, the thing here to teach isn't the relational principles. See, the reason I was getting bored was because what I was beginning to find was all I'm going to be doing, if, if I was going the other direction, was reminding you of what your second grade teacher taught you. You understand the difference between instruction and reminders? And, and, if, and if it's so basic, it's sticks and stones will break my bones. We all know that. We all know it to be true. And if all I'm going to do is get up here and remind you, and, and not only is it true, but it's biblical, so go out and feel guilty um, and, and be nice to each other. You know, I mean, if, if all I'm doing is reminding you that, that's why we read Scripture, for that daily reminder, but there's no real instruction in that. And I started thinking, man, that's interesting. It's like become so simple that all I'd be doing is reminding people, well, well what's the teaching element then? And I was kind of looking at the, well, I don't even know if there's a passage I can exposit because it's all over the map here. And then I began to go, well, what's the theme? What holds it all together? And this was my big aha moment. What holds it all together is wisdom. You see, wisdom is, is the subject. Wisdom is the thread that's constant. And it shows up with the mouth. It shows up with the attitude. It shows up with the anger. It shows up with your heart. It shows up with all the different facets of what a kind of a normal human life would be or the aspects of our relationship. And so Solomon is giving different pieces of this, but what he's keeping constant here is this tension between wisdom and folly. He's keeping constant this tension between wisdom and folly. So the teaching element here isn't 
Here's what your second grade teacher taught you, and we need to remember that. Let me remind you. The teaching aspect here is what your second grade teacher taught you and what is in the book of Proverbs and shows up in other places has everything to do with wisdom. What is it, well, what does that matter? Okay, so has everything to do with wisdom. So it's important because it has to do with wisdom. Well, what does that mean? It's interesting. Um, my youngest daughter, she's four now, um, is a mama's girl. She's our youngest one, our baby. I had all sorts of dreams of uh, how wonderful it was going to be having the fourth uh, I was going to get all the cuddles and snuggles and hugs. And, and, and so someday when, when I'm really old, I was going to re- be so full because I, I'd gotten all that I still needed from, from my youngest, right? Uh, starting at day one, <laughs> I got nothing. And it, and, it was, and it was with attitude. You know, it wasn't just indifference. It was, it was a, a rejection of me first and then a choosing of anyone and everyone else, right? <laughs> and so I, man, I, so I've, I, you've heard this before, so I've come, I've come up with ways to manipulate hugs out of her. Um, you know, um, big girls give good hugs and good kisses. And so then she thinks she's a big girl, she gives me hugs and kisses. And so, but that one's kind of played out now. And so there's other ones I use, you know, like magic cuddles. Like, you know, you give me magic cuddles, they make me happy. Look, see, they're magic. That, that for about the last three months, um, every time she sees me now, she goes, Dad, I don't want to do magic cuddles anymore. I'm like, dang it, it's like my heart. Um, and, I, I'm, and I'm tired a lot these days. I'm like, I can't think of anything else. Like, I'm, I'm out. I got no more game, you know. And like, what am, how am I going to manipulate my youngest? Uh, well, this morning, she comes in and... Uh, and so I was on a two-day trip um, to Nashville, so I was gone. So she comes in this morning, and she ends up crawling in bed, you know, um, with her jammies. It's early, and, and, like, really snuggling in, like, next to me. And stayed that way for the longest time ever. And I'm, I was just in heaven. I mean, I, honestly, if she hadn't traded me for oatmeal, I'd still be in bed right now, and <laughs> church would be a lot shorter. Um, but I mean, I was just so happy this morning. And so after a while, you know, she's pointing at the ceiling, you know, she's wide awake and she's pointing at different things, you know, like the lamp and I don't know, she's making up little pointing games. And then she points at the, the smoke alarm. I said, that's a smoke alarm. She goes, smoke alarm. What does it do? I said, well, it, it beeps if there's smoke. Well, why does it do that? You know? Well, because then, then if, there's, if it beeps and we know there's smoke, then we know there's fire, and then, and then we can call the firemen to, to put out the fire. And she, she kind of, she's, you know, cradled right here, and she whispers in my ear, if I heard that, I'd go run and hide, and then the fire wouldn't get me because she's really into hiding. It's like a power thing to her. She feels like if she hides, she has, like, power or control. And, um, and she says, you know, I'd go run and hide from the fire. My first thought was, whose parents are this, uh, you know, <laughs> belong to this kid, you know? And then I, you know, like, don't hide from a fire, right? And then I was like, I'm her parent. And I'm like, what's her mom teaching her? Um, <laughs> what's going on with, with it? So I was like, no, 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 you don't hide from fires, sweetie. You come and run and get mommy and daddy. So mommy and daddy can call the firemen. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, isn't this great? I'm, you know, I don't know what mom's doing, but I'm teaching my kid. And, and I, uh, and her response, listen to this. She goes, but God could put the fire out. So if I'm hiding and I talk to God, God could put the fire out. And I thought, wow, it's fascinating, you know. And I, but, and I, and I whispered to her and I said this. So, so, so bear, bear with this, Okay. But honey, one of the ways God helps us put out that fire is by using our smarts to know how to call the firemen when we need the firemen. 
by, by doing what's smart, it's one of the ways God has helped us to, to, to put out things like fires. Okay? Do you see what, what's going on right there? Wisdom is how God answers your prayers before you pray them. Wisdom is how God answers your prayers before you pray them. When you act according to wisdom, you are setting in motion a set of circumstances that brings about the kind of life you are yearning for or hoping for and relationships you're hungering for before you reach the dysfunction where you would need to cry aloud to God to fix it. Wisdom is answering the prayers before we pray them. Wisdom is the map that helps us not get lost before we get lost. Do you understand that? Wisdom is, is this forgotten thing that we don't really value or appreciate nearly enough. It's the secret to the life we were kind of made to, 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 to crave, the, the homing beacon in us, what we all are wired like true north to be at. Wisdom is the logic and the discernment and the knowledge and the decision making and the smarts to aim at that in day-to-day -day situations with our relationship with God and others and ourself. And as we mature and grow, as we get um, kind of the, the understanding, we're able to leverage into that. And the kind of life we yearn for comes about as we follow the dictates of wisdom, the calling of wisdom, the invitation of wisdom. And that's why it says in the book of Proverbs, like when you really get this, when you really understand this, you will search out for wisdom. You will hunt it down. You will want it more than riches or gold because riches and gold is a part of what might make for a good life. Wisdom is the secret to the whole thing. And so when you understand that, you're going to go, riches, kind of cool, wisdom, better. And so we, we, we don't have, I think, this deep, resonant yearning for and value of wisdom that we ought to have. And so look at what we get when we're here. It's the lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools lie, uh, die for lack of judgment. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct, but a man of understanding delights in wisdom. Delights in it. Gets excited about it. Jumps up and down about it. Has a hunger and an appetite and a, and a desire for it. Delights in wisdom. Celebrates wisdom. What the wicked dreads will overtake him. What the righteous desire will be granted. Um, Psalm 34, um, man who delights himself in the Lord um, will, will get the desires of his heart. The righteous desire will be granted. The person who is rightly ordered with God and rightly positioned with God and keeping um, in a nice, tight, three-legged race rather than way out on the end of the tether, but the righteous what they desire will be granted to them. And what do the righteous desire? What do the righteous desire? Move down to verse 28. Chapter 10, verse 28 of the book of Proverbs. This got me excited because when I finally realized, you know what I'm going to talk about ultimately in this message? is joy, which is like my favorite word, always been my favorite word. When I, so I was like, you know what, where this is going to go is joy. I got so excited, I almost thought about dressing up for church. Um, see, look at this. The prospect of the righteous is joy. But the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. The prospect of the righteous is joy. Not pleasure, but joy. Prospect of the righteous is joy, but the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. What you can expect, what you are aiming for, what you are hoping for, and what 
the promises that you're trusting in. Now, this is a promise. The book of Proverbs are wise sayings. It's not always promises. But this promise is attested to throughout Scripture. Get to that in just a minute. It's a promise that when we walk with God, that's going to be our source of joy. We might have calamity, but somehow, some way, through all that fog, we'll find and anchor ourselves in this relationship. And our hope and our prospect for joy comes from God. The life we want comes this way. Not in bailing on this way and going a different way. And so Solomon in the book of Proverbs is saying with your tongue, with your relationships, with your attitudes, with your anger, with your reactions, with, with all of this, the way you work, the way you treat your workers, you do it this way, the rightly ordered way, the way where you're following God, the way God designed it, and your prospect is life and joy in peace. Now here's the problem if I'm going to talk about joy. The two things we want most, I don't think we know we really want most. The two things that I actually think we want most, I don't think we really want or know that we want most, and that's peace and joy. Why? Well, joy is kind of a tinny word. It's not, it's not really robust. It doesn't have this urgent kind of feel to it. And peace is kind of like the absence of conflict. And it's like, ah, oh, it's, it's okay. Um, peace. I mean, the Hebrew word shalom means the presence of goodness, the way it's supposed to be, the fullness. We, we, don't, we don't see these words and jump up and down. But when we see the opposite, I think is when we begin to understand these two things are what we really crave. When you are so stressed with work, when you are so stressed with the prospects of failing or failing your family or, or not being able to solve the problems that, that have come up around you or the disagreements or the, the breaches in community or, or whatever it might be, you realize, man, the prospect of peace where it's just, it's, man, it's just, it's all good. Is, is so desirable. What are we all working for anyway, especially as guys? Like, if I only had more money, if I only could, I finally reach the income I want, if I could only guarantee that income for the next 20 years, then I could ratchet back and it's all just settled. It's settled. I can just downshift and now whew, take a deep breath and just enjoy, right? If it was just settled, then, then I, could, I could just cozy up into it. What does settled mean? Peace, shalom, goodness, the way it's supposed to be, the absence of fear of calamity, it's, it's peace. And joy, it's like, man, if I just didn't feel so alone, if I, if I didn't just feel so lonely, if I didn't feel so depressed, you know, I mean, physically depressed or spiritually or, or relationally, if I didn't just feel like, man, I can't keep going like I just there's no end to all this labor or all this difficulty and I just need a fix I just need a hit of something to make me feel like oh man you know it's all okay I love life I, I I'm glad I'm alive I I have expectation for the future I have hope there's a twinkle back behind all of the, these layers, and I can keep going. I mean, there's, there's an anointing there that allows me to move forward no matter what I'm in now. The book of Hebrews uh, talks about Jesus. He was anointed with the oil of joy and set above his companions. And then it even says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus died because there was a reward on the other side of that, that he had his eyes fixed on and was palpable for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And God took Jesus and anointed him with this oil of joy or gladness and set him above his, his companions. The idea is Jesus knows where to look to ground the twinkle in his eyes, to ground the hope, to ground the perseverance, to ground the endurance, to ground the smile despite the circumstances. And so I know when I feel at the end of my rope and I'm like, man, 
Maybe the X factor will just really make me feel good about life again. That was last night. And no, it didn't. Um, I was really annoyed by it. I was like, anyways, um, it's a different, different, different um, subject. When, we, when we're in the middle of it, what we're afraid of and what we hope for show that joy and peace are two hallmarks of what life, what, what life in the image of God points us to. And you see, wisdom is answered prayers before you pray them. Life the way it's supposed to be lived resolves itself here that the prospect of the righteous is joy. Our hopes will be fulfilled whereas the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. What does all that mean? It means something really important. Um, none of us are perfect. None of us are going to get all the relational things or all the wisdom things right. None of us are always going to speak well of everybody. Um, I, you know, I routinely speak ill of my dog, Peaches, and I mildly feel like I'm doing something wrong. Um, but she doesn't understand, so it, I feel... But none of us are perfect. But there's something that comes together in all of this that I think we need to grasp. You see, independently, we know, we know these subjects are important. Intimacy with God. We know it's important. We read books about it. We want it. We hunger for it. We don't always feel like we have it, but we know it's important. Um, obedience to Christ, we know it's important. We know, we know that we call ourselves Christian. There, there ought to be some kind of following up under there, but obedience to Christ, we, we kind of get it's important. There's books about it. We write about it. We talk about it. We, we, we wrestle with discipleship with regard to it. And then there's, there's justice we kind of, you know, we talk about all, we kind of know it matters, justice for our fellow man, justice in our society, that we would be just people. We kind of know it's universal. We, we kind of get it. We talk about it. And then our joy, our peace and joy, we, we really deep down crave it. I mean, really it's what motivates us. And without it, we kind of, uh, we don't want to tell anyone, but we, we're not really motivated all the time for some of these other spiritual things because we're hungry for joy. So we have these different categories. And frankly, we don't talk about this enough in the, in the Christian life. So most of us, when we're like, man, I just don't know how to be happy, we end up with secular books. Maybe this psychologist can help me. Maybe this self-help book can help me. Maybe, we, I mean, we need more, that's a side note, but we don't talk about happiness well in the church. But these things, we keep them all compartmentalized and distinct from each other. But I want to I show you something because it's Christmas and it's the best time of the year. And I love it. Um, and some of you are wearing red and green. makes me all happy inside. And, and listen to how this goes. So Isaiah, we're starting with the Christmas story here. Isaiah. Chapter 7. Hear now, O house of David, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign of his deliverance, and the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. So now all of a sudden we're talking about intimacy with God, closeness with God, right? So there's going to be a child, and the name is going to be God with us. And he will eat curds and honey, and when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, but before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings, and he goes on and gives the prophecy. We come over to chapter 9. In chapter 9, it says this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Hope has come. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. I love that word picture. And it goes down, it says, for this joy, this celebration has come, because for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You see, it's not just about his, his death. More, more on that in a second. Not just about Jesus dying on a cross, but the government, how things are ordered, the way the kingdom is supposed to work is going to be on his shoulders. And he will reign and of the increase of that government and peace, the shalom, the goodness, the way it's supposed to be, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteous, with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And it's the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is going to come near, and it's the zeal of, of the Lord that's going to do what? By bringing us a, a, a Lord and a Savior that, that we're going to be able to, to follow and be united with, obedience to Christ, because he is the king, and he's the deliverer, and the government's on his shoulders, and we're going to rejoice at this because it's bringing about the circumstances that we've hungered for and that we've yearned for and that we need. And in all of this, it's going to be wrapped with justice and with peace and this goodness that we all know should be a hallmark of the kingdom of God or what it looks like when we're living in unity or intimacy or community. And these four things kind of ball together into a whole. Look at how this shows up in Luke. Luke, the nativity scene. Luke chapter 2, and there were angels, verse 8, and there were, uh, sorry, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, by the way, this is a cool aspect of scripture, you never see angels singing until the book of Revelation. You never see angels singing in Scripture until the book of Revelation. We get that wrong in kind of our Christmas plays. Angels say before the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, they sing. So here, they come to the shepherds and they say, angel says to them, do not be afraid. I will bring you good news of great joy. What's another word for good news? Gospel. Let me tell you some gospel truth of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company, the heavenly host, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. So, intimacy with God. God sends his angels to these shepherds and says, a savior has been born to you, basically going to redeem you out so that you can be my people again. Intimacy with God. And he's not only a savior, but a lord he is Christ the Lord. And, and so it is my son who I'm sending, the Messiah, the, the promised king of David. Why was Herod so upset? Why is it so amazing that they get to go see, be the first ones to recognize a king? By the way, who gets to go see the president or the king usually? Low class or high class? What are the shepherds in this society? There's a justice theme work in here that's unbelievable, this equality thing where God's like, I got my king and I'm going to bring some people to be the first ones to see him. And guess who they're going to be? It's going to be the shepherds. Because man, this is a king for all the people. This isn't just a class issue. So God's sending his angels. They're telling the shepherds. So God is, is working this thing out. Here's Christ, the King, the Lord, the Savior. And guess what? This is gospel truth. And it is great joy for all the people. And you know what? It's, it's marked by peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward, toward men. 
And so shalom and the goodness that's supposed to be a hallmark of the kingdom is all wrapped up in this, this justice thing that we all know should be a part of society. And so intimacy with God, obedience up underneath Christ, justice and peace, and our own joy that we, we know, if we would admit it, so motivates us for everything we choose and do in life, are all wrapped up in this little gospel narrative that has to do with the birth of Jesus. You see, we make a big mistake in the church. This is going to sound like heresy. We make a big mistake in church and think that the be-all, end-all of the cro- is the cross of Christ. I mean, this is really going to sound like heresy for a minute, and then it won't. But for a minute, it will. We make a mistake thinking that the be-all, end-all is the cross of Christ. What do I mean by that? We, we take the cross of Christ to be an end not a means. You guys know the difference between a means and an end, right? A means exists for the end of something else. An end is, is the terminal point. We make a mistake and we think the gospel has only to do with the death of Jesus, has only to do with the cross of Christ, where we receive forgiveness, where we are atoned for, and where, where we no longer have to present sacrifices because we're imperfect, And we take that as an end. Now let's play that out. If that's an end, not a means, but an end, when Jesus dies, there's something really fascinating that happens in in the book of Matthew. You guys remember this story? Jesus dies, it gets dark, and there's like an earthquake. And the temple, the house of God is hit by this earthquake, right? And the temple has these courts where people come in. It has this big altar where animal sacrifices are burnt for the forgiveness of sin. And then it has the Holy of Holies where, where the glory of God, the Holy Spirit in some sense dwells and is with his people. Okay? So this is the temple. And this earthquake kind of crazy stuff's going on. And if the atonement, if the cross of Christ was an end, wouldn't we expect in that that text of Matthew, that the altar would crack, break open, and symbolically demonstrate no more sacrifices of sin ever, it's done. Wouldn't we expect that? If that was the main subject of what was going on? But that's not what we see in Matthew, is it? Do you remember what we see in Matthew? The temple curtain that separates man from God or man globally, humankind from God, that, t- that temple, Holy of Holies curtain, rips in two from top to bottom, symbolizing what? That the death of Jesus and the atonement of sins, the cross of Christ, has accomplished as a means the end to which God designed it for, which is reconciliation and redemption of the relationship between the lost ones or those estranged from God and God. Intimacy with God accomplished in our relationship with Christ, restoring things the way they're supposed to be to this kingdom reality and filling us with joy that comes from a hope and good news of a life with God in a future resurrection life that we, we can look forward to. The gospel isn't just about the death of, of, of Jesus. It's about Jesus. Meaning, Jesus' life was not for his death, but both his life and his death were for a kingdom life and a kingdom reality to which God is inviting us into. Both Jesus' life and his death serve the proclamation and and the commissioning of a kingdom life and a kingdom reality to, to which we are called into where we have intimacy with God, we're in discipleship relationship with Christ where he is our king and our Lord and our savior and our high priest and that kingdom is marked by peace, shalom, goodness, justice and we are filled with the resulting joy which is promised to the righteous, the prospect of the righteous is joy. 
So these four things that we, 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 we study ad nauseum with our, our small group books and our conversations and our Christian chats and all that, we take them as separate things. Intimacy with God and what about Christ and discipleship? How's that work? And justice, I know it's important, but really? And then my joy, I, I gotta get fed. God designed me to, to hunger and thirst for joy. The Spirit, uh, St. Augustine said, the Spirit feeds on that which gives it joy. We take these things in parts, and, and Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, said something I think really poignant. He wrote, in the last hundred years, Christianity has made the mistake of taking things in bits and pieces instead of holes. And I think we have to put the amalgam back together in, in the holistic kind of unity of it all. And so my favorite verse in all of Scripture, and, and, and you've heard me read this 20 times, Echoes all of this, John 15, verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. So intimacy with God. Now you remain in my love if you obey my commands. Discipleship with Christ. And you will remain in my love. Um, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Discipleship with Christ. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. I and the Father are one. I've come to bridge the gap so that there can be intimacy with these three things. And if you obey my commands, you will remain in this relationship. So intimacy with God, obedience, discipleship with Christ. And I tell you this because I care about you and I want your joy to be fulfilled. I want to anoint you with the oil of joy and set you above your companions just like God anointed me with the oil of joy and set me above my companions. And I want you to be able to live the discipleship life and sacrifice for others. Give your life away and find blessing in return because um, you can look at the joy set before you just like I was able to do it. I want you to have that kind of faith that you can lock your eyes on and get excited about the prospect of joy. The prospect of the righteous is joy. And so, wow, we've got intimacy with God and discipleship with Christ and our own joy. Where does justice fit in? Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Well, what's his commands? Verse 12, my command is this. You love each other as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, measured in sacrifice. And so the command that, that Jesus calls us to is a kind of kingdom reality where all of the things we see, even in the book of Proverbs, the relational things, the sacrificial things, the things we do to build shalom and to keep the peace and to nurture into relationship, he commands us, love, love God, love others, enter into this, just obey my command and come alongside and be a part of doing what I am doing. That's what we are invited to as his body, the church. What Jesus started, and now he, he continues to desire as the head of his body, we get to be the hands and feet of when we go into this world and live out that kingdom reality. So there's four things that, that we, we wrestle with, and they're actually this beautiful, kind of threaded together, woven together whole. When you choose to pursue God, or heed the call of wisdom, or the call of discipleship, Whatever way you want to talk about it, you will find God, you will find Christ, you will find justice and joy all wrapped up into one. It's a part of the gospel story, the good news um, of great joy. Last thing is this, why would we not do this? I, want to be, I, I, want to, I just want to be really honest with you. I want you to be honest with me. This is the great secret that I think we hide from ourselves. Every one of us, this is the thing, the fear, we know we have, and we try to hide it from ourselves. And the fear is this. If I jump into that, if I dive off that diving board into that picture of a relationship with God, if, I, if that's what Christianity is, and I choose that path, Will I miss out on something? Will I lose out on life? Will other people get something more than what I'll get? 
I mean, I know it's probably best for everyone considered, but is it really best for me as an individual? If I give in to that, will I lose out? Can I really trust this? Can I really follow God and believe that he's going to bring about my good? Will the prospect of this really be joy? Doesn't always feel like it. I don't know that I quite trust it. Maybe I can hedge my bets and get a little bit of this and a little bit of that and together it kind of makes me feel a little bit comfortable. If I go all in with my chips, I got nothing to lean back on. Maybe I can keep some of those chips in, in reserve and only go into the pot with a certain amount. If we're really honest with ourselves this morning, I think we all fundamentally keep this secret from ourselves. And the secret is this. I struggle with whether I can really trust God. I don't so much struggle with the fact that God exists, although I might have doubts, but I really struggle with the idea of giving my life fully over to him. Can I really trust it? Now, I think only you, only me, only us individually can answer that question and be honest with that fear. And so that's the invitation this morning, is to put that fear in front of you, to be honest and transparent with what, what we really like to hide and not look at or deal with, and say, God, I struggle with giving you everything. I struggle with putting two hands out. I struggle with my life being 100% yours. I don't know that that's really going to bring me joy. I, I, I have fears. So I'm going to pray for us right now. Um, and if you want, maybe you can just put both hands out. If you kind of know where you want to be, and that's where you're asking God for help, Maybe just as we pray, you can put both hands out and just say, look, I want to sign up for that. Whatever fears I've got, I'll deal with them as I go, but I want to be on that path. I want intimacy with God, discipleship with Christ. I want my own joy and justice to be all woven together and be a holistic thing in my life and in my faith. So if that's you, maybe just put your hands out. Let's pray. Father, we give our lives to you. No reservations, no regrets not holding anything back. We stand naked before you even if we want to pretend that we don't. And so please, as, as awkward as it is, help us to put everything that symbolizes our life in our hands in front of us and let us lay those down or hand those to you and be in complete submission and complete surrender because only there will we have the true prospect of joy that we all hunger for and that you have promised us. We are weak. Please help our unbelief. We give it all to you in Jesus' name.